waking up is not enough flourishing in the human space a podcast by Polly young eisendraft and michael berger when you peek into the cosmic unity of existence and feel the love and inspiration of awakening what happens next whether it's through meditation spiritual practice near-death experience ingesting a mind-altering substance or being born again you don't get a map for improving your messy life in this podcast Polly young eisendraft and michael berger draw on expertise in science psychology adult development psychedelics ndes dreams and buddhist practice in conversations about compassion resilience responsibility kindness and development after awakening you will learn how to chart a new path for flourishing in the human space in which waking up is important but not enough and growing up is never finished co-hosts Polly young eisendraft and michael berger bring different kinds of expertise Polly is an author psychologist union analyst longtime zen practitioner couple therapist and founder of dialogue therapy and real dialogue michael berger is an entrepreneur an expert in psychedelics a spiritual practitioner of jewishness a skeptic a real dialogue specialist and a filmmaker who is known for his documentary improbable collapse the demolition of our republic Polly and Mike will engage with each other and invite a wide array of guests who are accomplished scientists and seekers whose work lies beyond the hegemony of materialism. A conversation with Donald Hoffman, PhD, Conscious Realism, Real Dialogue, and Human Subjectivity. As soon as scientists really understand that space-time is doomed, they, they understand what the spiritual traditions have been saying for thousands of years. Then the blinkers are off and science is going to really transform human society. I can't wait. So if the, quote, reality that's observed is not independent of the observer, right? So this is one system that's interconnected and there's a bi-directional, I guess, impact of perception with a feedback loop to the entire system. Yes. So from what you were just speaking to then what would be some of the insights into individual human experiences from this framework can it help us or how might it help us understand basically some of the variance in subjective experience and maybe how does shared experience emerge through conscious realism and conscious agents right so you're you're right that observation is we thought in, in in like Newtonian physics that the observer was sort of independent and, and didn't do objective and didn't interfere with the system. Now with quantum theory, we're, we're understanding that the act of observation, you're, the observer is an integral part of the very system that you're observing and, and can't be dismissed. You have to understand the whole system of the observer and the interacting system. They're, they're in some sense, one dynamical system that with interactions back and forth. And of course, the theory of conscious agents says that with a vengeance, right? It's it, it's it's agents all the way down. The only thing that agents are interacting with are other agents. So it's it's really observers interacting with observers. It's observation all all the way down. And 
we're going to be publishing a paper pretty soon with what we call the trace order logic on these observers, where we actually, it's a, a precise understanding of how, what it means to be an observer and how you're embedded in what you observe. And you get this beautiful non-Bouldian logic that's, I think, going to be tran transformative. So it's important to understand that the observer is not independent and, and objective, but is, is embedded. And when you take that point of view, quantum theory already is sort of pointing to that point of view, but, but you know, they haven't fully understood it. The observer, you know, conscious agent, uh, conscious realism stuff puts that front and center. And to go a step further, then the fundamental assumption here is that consciousness is outside of space-time and is, in, in essence, projecting itself into space-time. I think yeah. earlier you had mentioned that you had discovered or there are mathematical structures beyond space-time. You know, can you discuss that? And I'm wondering about Throughout history, there have been people who have had these unitive experiences, non-dual experiences, whether from spontaneous awakenings, meditation, more so now with the psychedelic renaissance, more and more people are seeming to access a awareness that is beyond space-time. So I'm wondering if, for you, does this fit as, I guess, maybe empirical confirmation in some sense of this notion? Right. So... So the first part of your question was about these structures beyond space-time, and and this is what the high-energy theoretical physicists have been doing for the last twenty years or so. They've they've discovered new mathematical structures. Some of the some of the math is is actually fairly recent too. Last twenty or thirty years, the mathematics. So it's really quite amazing. The physicists, uh, some of the physicists are quite amazed that the mathematics has just been evolved and and they need that mathematics right now because they're they're stepping outside of space-time. So things like the amplitude-hedron is is based on on some mathematics that uh, is relatively recent so and decorated permutations or you know a permutation is like if you have a bunch of cards and you shuffle them you change the order that's a permutation a decorated permutation is, is slightly more complicated it's but i'll just say it's a little bit more complicated kind of permutation and to their amazement physicists have found that for for massless particles like gluons and photons these decorated permutations pretty much give you everything you need to describe their scattering interactions in the, in colliders like the Large Hadron Collider. So, the, so, the, so there are these things, these decorated permutations. They're not inside space time. They're not curled up inside dimensions of space time. They're utterly outside of space time, but they project down to space time. And when you try to compute these the scattering probabilities with what they call scattering amplitudes, like if two gluons hit each other and six gluons go spraying out, what's the probability of that? You know, for each configuration. If you do it inside space-time, if you do the mathematics inside space-time using quantum field theory, hundreds of pages of algebra, it's a mess. When you let go of space-time, three or four terms you can write down by hand and you can compute oh. by hand. Quantum field theory has been an incredibly powerful tool for several decades oh. in, in physics, but it's also a kludge. It's, 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 space-time is not the truth, it's just a headset. And it's, it, it's a projection of the truth, it's not the truth. And so when you only have a projection the mathematics gets a lot harder when you get outside of that projection you begin to see deeper structures that are more simple when you project them they get all complicated but when you when you step outside of space-time you can see symmetries that you can't see there's something called the infinite yangian symmetry that you can see outside of space-time but you don't see it inside space-time so the physicists are the ones who are finding these structures like the amplitudehedron and decorated permutation and what my team has been doing is we have this theory of conscious agents outside of space-time it's mm -hmm. a Markovian dynamics. And so we mm -hmm. said, we want to show how our theory of consciousness can predict gluon scattering. 
-hmm. So how are we going to do that? We well, the physicists are meeting us halfway. They're outside of space-time. So are we. We're outside of space-time. They mm -hmm. said, if you can connect to decorated permutations, we can take you all the way into scattering. So we said, thank mm -hmm. you. We need to connect to decorated permutations. And so we did that. In January, we published a paper, and anybody can read it. It's called Fusions of Consciousness. And we, we it's apparently a new contribution to mathematics. We showed how to take the Markovian dynamics of conscious agents or anything and turn it into decorated permutations. So, so now what we're doing is, so we have the map from conscious agent dynamics to decorated permutations. The physicists are taking us all the way into scattering amplitudes from that. So I'm spending a lot of my time right now just reading what the physicists have done to make sure I understand it. So because the map is already there, it's just up for me now to, I have to learn some physics and understand how that map works. And once I understand that, then I'll be able to then generalize it and understand what they're doing for the massive particles. So this is for the massless particles, then we'll go for the massive. So, so you can see how how fun this is, right? The physicists, they, they discovered that space-time is doomed. They said, let's find new structures outside of space-time. We said, thank you, thank you, thank you, because mm -hmm. we're already outside of space-time. We want to get into space-time so we can mm -hmm. test ourselves, right? We need to make predictions mm -hmm. about particle scattering mm -hmm. so we can test our theory. And they've done the hard work for us. So, so that's, you can see how the going outside of space-time is really already taking science to a new level. Well, you know, the thing that I'm struck by, even when you're speaking about it, is that these are people, some people doing this under some circumstances of questioning a hypothesis that has been held firmly, like the speed of light and space-time as fundamental. They began to discover through their investigations that it's not fundamental, and then they began to discover further by dropping it, there were some advantages. And then you would, were already, Don Hoffman and his team, you were already into dropping it from your reasons. So you'll start to work together to develop a coherent human understanding of how to get beyond space-time in terms of theory and what could be generated there. The reason that I I put it back into the human is because I think there are only you know certain humans that would be interested in this and doing it. Years ago, I had a, an opportunity to to meet Thomas Kuhn. I was doing some seminars at at Haverford and Bryn Mawr, and he was very strongly uh, skeptical as to whether social scientists could ever speak to and really understand hard scientists, natural scientists back and forth, because he felt the conversations and practices were inherently different. Now, in a certain way, I think you're saying, this may be uh, demonstrating that, that Thomas Kuhn might have been wrong about certain things. I um, mean, you might have known him when you were at MIT. I, I know I you were. But... Well, it was a class taught by Noam Chomsky and Jerry Fodor. Yeah. And and, and Thomas Kuhn was in the class. So it was, was uh, class. it was quite a powerful class. Um, yes, I bet. I bet. I could only imagine or speculate. What I wondered about in, in Kuhn's position there, because he seemed to, to some extent, appreciate some of the important hypotheses that were coming out of the social sciences. And at that particular moment, I, I was working in the area of Jane Lovinger's research, and I had already graduated with my doctorate from Washington University. I was at Bryn Mawr, but I was doing the same kind of investigation, which was on something she called ego development. Mm -hmm. And so this is stage theory, but it's a logical stage theory for it's a sort of neo, neo Piagetian for the paradigms that humans go through as they develop, that there's not a random development of humans, right. even in adulthood. 
but th there is a, a you know a, a formal development through stages that mm -hmm. are undergirded by interpersonal logic, emotional logic, in other words, not mathematical logic, right, but right. a certain kind of logic. And I could appreciate that what Jane was doing was on the boundaries of what was scientifically possible for investigating subjectivity. It was a scientific investigation of subjectivity. Mm -hmm. And at that point, a lot of people said that's not possible. You cannot do a scientific investigation of subjectivity. But she was, and it was partly because she was a mathematician by background, a statistician, et cetera. What I, occurred to me in talking with Kuhn was that if there isn't this kind of conversation between people who are studying, let's say, human logical forms, and people who are studying more mathematical logical forms, if there isn't that kind of conversation, I wasn't sure that the observer function could ever be understood. Now, Carl Jung said sort of the same thing, and Freud did too. I mean, I think both of them were skeptical about scientists studying space without studying humans, the humans who are investigating space. You know, you're in this interface right now. You're optimistic, it seems, from what you're saying, that the people that are studying, that are trying to go beyond the paradigm of space-time, those people do want to be in conversation with people who might be looking more at the human observer, who is this human, and, and what is, I mean, I know you're not coming at it from that perspective, but in a certain way, you are a psychologist. I mean, in a certain way, you, you have a background of studying, you know, human perceptions. I guess what I would like to hear you comment on, and then maybe we can move this more into some of the issues that have to do with real dialogue, but also a little bit uh, with, with spirituality and religion and some of the psychedelic stuff. What do you think the chances are that this kind of conversation between, you know, we we call them social scientists or you know scientists that deal with with the human and the scientists that deal with space-time mathematical observations that humans are making that the conversation is going to actually take place in a different way than it has you know until now let's say you know that there hasn't been i mean there'll be speculative conversations but nothing serious you know, and, and Kuhn thought it was impossible that these were two different conversations. Right. So the connection between like the physicists and the, the work we're doing. Yes. What's really interesting is that the physicists, they have found these static structures outside of space time. They're not dynamical systems. They're, they don't have any dynamics. Hmm. Right. So, so, so they're, they found these like these, like in 2001, the space odyssey, there's that, that monolith yes. that came down and, and, right. and, 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 you know, the, the, the apes are beating on it and they're hooting at it. They know it's it's significant, but they don't know what it means. Right. And so here, here we, we're, we've taken our first steps outside of our headset, outside of space-time, and we're finding these monoliths, these, these, these structures. But if you think about it as a physicist, okay, we need a dynamics, but it's a dynamics of entities beyond space-time. What are we going to do? What kind of entities... Do we want to have a dynamics of beyond space time? Already it's starting to sound schmistical, right? I mean, this 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 mm -hmm. is mysticism all over the place here. Mm -hmm. Dynamical systems outside of space time, right? So it, it's when you when you find these static structures, one thing. But now, if it's dynamics, you go dynamics of what and mm -hmm. why? Those mm -hmm. you 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 can no longer 
ignore those questions. So they've just taken these steps out of uh, out of the headset, out of space time. Just going like the amplitudehedron was published in 2014. It's less than 10 years old. Mm -hmm. So so this is so you know this this is all brand new stuff. And so they're not yet ready to talk about a dynamical system outside of space time. They're still finding these structures outside of, of mm -hmm. space time. But here we're we're saying, well, we have a dynamics of entities outside of space time. We call them conscious agents. And, and you may be as a physicist, you don't like that, but fine. Just take the mathematics. We have the dynamical system of these entities. Call them outside space time units. OSUs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> whatever you want to whatever you want to call them, but, but we have a dynamical system of things outside of space-time. Spiritual traditions are already happy. Right? You, know, mm -hmm. you got stuff outside of space-time. That's great. And and so we can map, you know, as I mentioned, we can map through their decorated permutations into space-time, so we can actually get tests of our theories. So, so I think that there will be... My hope is this. If we... And this is what I'm working towards right now. If we can deeply connect with what they've got, and show that we can use the Markovian dynamics to actually get the structures that they've got. Then, for technical reasons, they'll be all over our theory. They may say the consciousness stuff is nonsense, but 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 they'll, for technical mm -hmm. reasons, want to go after our mathematics. But then they'll have to answer the question for themselves: dynamics of what? What what mm -hmm. are these entities outside of space time, and why are they doing what they're doing? There's something earlier that you mentioned that I wanted to also address, um, and that is um, when we go from one scientific theory like space time to another one, so like conscious agents outside of space time, the attitude of, of of a scientist is not, oh, well, so much the worse for space time. What a terrible theory! Absolutely not. That's not my my attitude whatsoever. My attitude is this: space time is was an incredible gift. Thank you, Einstein. Thank you. All the mm -hmm. physicists who did it, unbelievable gift. And that will stand the test of time. That that what I have to do is get a deeper theory and show how it projects into space-time. Mm -hmm. And if I if my projection gives me the wrong answers in space-time, then my theory is wrong. So so mm -hmm. see what, what we pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We're, we use space-time and our theory of space-time to really give us detailed tests on our new theories outside of space-time. The theories inside space-time can't tell us where to go in terms of our theories outside. They can't say, you need to go over there. They, they can give you mathematical constraints, but they can't, you have to be creative. You got to just, this is like Thomas Kuhn's, you know, structure uh -huh. scientific revolution. Right. Revolution right. comes when someone thinks out of the box and gets a brand new framework, a new idea. But you don't just throw away the old stuff. Right. It was there for a reason. You know, scientists don't keep these, you know, Newton was there for several centuries for good reason. It, it, it's not the truth, but boy, is it a really good, good theory. It's a powerful theory and we can still send people to the moon using that theory. We have to show that our deeper theories project and are compatible with, with theories inside space-time. So again, so it's, it's, you have to be on the one hand adventurous and go beyond what you've been taught but then there's this deep respect for what you were taught and you better find that you can project into what you were taught and get something sensible there or your your new theory is just wrong. So the, so you can see it's, it's complicated how the, the structure of scientific revolution is how we get the revolution and go to the next theory. It's not like we just torch everything that was done before. No, we, we almost worship what was done before and then are grateful for it and we have to project into it. What's well, it reintegration of paradigms? I mean, yes. the earlier paradigms are, are integrated into the new paradigms, but that is also the exact trajectory of Jane Lavender's stages of development. Mm -hmm. Each new development for the human is the reintegration and the redesigning of meaning 
from the earlier one, but it's integrated into a new paradigm. Nothing's ever lost. It's always yeah. reintegrated. And so the hypotheses making in each new stage of development is a result of this new integration that arises from the earlier paradigm, let's say. And so in that way, you know, I mean, for a while, I've seen uh, at least a speculation about how science develops like humans develop it. I mean, it's like humans develop and they develop a science that mirrors their development. The thing is that there's no end to that because of course it's always emergent. It's always emergent and it's always, again, testing what is possible to understand at any at any time. But what seems new from what you're saying that is kind of a potential, let's say, very new thing would be for human practices like the social sciences or spiritual practices coming into a serious contact with science at the highest levels of science and an investigation then of something that you're calling consciousness and that also spiritual traditions would have called consciousness. I guess what where I'd like to go back with what Mike said is, is, is there any way that conscious realism deals with the idea that you know, you you said it in, in our earlier interview that when when there's a deep dialogue or conversation, there's a new entity that emerges, new okay. conscious entity. You know, it sounds on the surface of the interface theory of perception that you know we're we're pretty much interfacing through our own icons. So then, when we meet another person, you know, when a Polly meets a Don Hoffman, and the we're meeting each other, our interests have something in common, but they're different. Then what happens? that we can share, and then what happens as a result of that sharing, like does conscious realism have anything to say about, I don't know, mirroring, sharing, empathy, you know, these kinds of things that allow the humans with their particular icons to interface with each other. You know, without changing, like I, you know, right now I'm looking at, at a, an image of Don Hoffman. I've never been in the room with Don Hoffman, but I'm assuming I'm understanding some things that Don Hoffman is saying, but I'm basing those on pretty much my own mm -hmm. language, theory, memory, whatever. So is that what you were asking, Mike? Something like that? Close. Yes. <laughs> it's related. Yes. Uh, yeah. I'm curious about how you because you're really speaking in a different language, right? We're talking about mathematical models. So how do the higher order conscious agents through their interactions, what, what are the structures that might emerge? How does that relate to our shared consensual reality, let alone our own understanding? Right, right. So yeah, it's a, it's a great, great topic. We have a pretty trivial headset. We're stuck in only three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. We have three cone types for three different kinds of color receptors. The mantis shrimp has 10, pigeons have four. We're, we're, so our interactions with each other as conscious consciousnesses is through an extremely limited headset, right? It's all we know. And so we think it's the, we, we've thought that it's the truth and the final reality and we're really impressed with it. I'm not impressed with it at all. I think we got a cheap model here. Why not have, instead of three dimensions of space, why not have 10 million dimensions of space? Instead of three cones, why not have 50,000 different kinds of cone types and, and, and colors? 
I mean, in, in, in six or seven senses, why not have 50,000 different senses? So we're, consciousness is nowhere near as limited as our space-time headset. I mean, it, it's, 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 you have to think out of the box. It's completely unlimited. So you can't think wildly enough. Your, your worst acid trip is not getting you close to thinking wildly enough about the possibilities of consciousness. As a scientist, I, I just see that from the mathematics, right? So the mathematics just tells me, I mean, the, what, we're, what we've got here is trivial compared to what's possible. So, so as we begin to, so scientists and science has thought for centuries that they were studying reality. No, they were studying our headset. Mm -hmm. And they, they got really good at studying our headset and they learned the techniques of science studying our headset our species has now for the first time realized just in the last 20 or 30 years we can use our tools to step outside the headset and we're starting so we're going to get layers of understanding outside the headset maybe the conscious agent formalism will be the first baby step the, the first layer outside of space-time of a dynamical physicists have found you know decorated permutations and so forth so they found structures but not dynamics outside of space-time what you really want is the dynamics. So once we have that dynamics of consciousness, at least a first layer of it, right? It's just a baby step. That's going to have implications for how we understand ourselves as consciousnesses, right? Mm -hmm. So as social beings, that's going to have incredible. It will give us understandings about how our interactions may be creating new conscious entities that we didn't even, that we weren't, you know, we weren't aware of because of the limits of our, of our space-time headset. So there'll, there'll be, the science will give us new tools for understanding our social interactions at a deeper level. They will also give us new technologies. So for, so for example, right now, inside of our headset, the closest galaxy to us is the Andromeda. It's about 2.537 million light years from Earth. So going at the speed of light would take you two and a half million years to get there. So you, your grandkids, your great-great-grandkids, they're not going to be alive. You, you put them on the ship and just... So that's our nearest galaxy. And there are billions, maybe trillions of galaxies out there. That's our nearest one. So there's all this real estate out there. There's no way for us to get to it inside the headset. But what? But the headset is just a headset. Mm -hmm. What if we have the software? So think about the conscious agent dynamics. This is the software outside the headset, a layer of the software that's programming the headset. So in Grand Theft Auto, I, I could be... The wizard that actually knows how to drive through the town as fastest as possible. No one can beat me. But if I'm the software engineer that wrote the, the code, mm -hmm. I can do stuff that would be miraculous to the wizard. I can I just move your car from here to A to B. Mm -hmm. I can take the gas out of your car and give you flat tires. I can do whatever I want to. Mm -hmm. I'm not stuck in the headset. So mm -hmm. the technologies that are about to be opened up, there are social technologies. We're going to understand ourselves as conscious social entities more deeply. But we'll also have new technologies. We'll be able to go to Andromeda Galaxy, not through space-time, but around space-time. Mm -hmm. And so, so this is going to open up all sorts of amazing technologies that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see. I mean, I... Well, you know, that fits very much. I mean, as it's a good segue into a little bit of Buddhism, because I know we're, we're nearing the end of the time here. But of course, within Buddhist theories, which really evolved in a very complicated way in the first five centuries they were in India. So it's it's a rather, so, you know, after the, the Buddha dies, there's 454 years before the stuff is written down. So it's written down from an oral tradition. Right. And during the time that it's being passed on orally, there are people practicing. But then once it's written down in something called the Abhidharma, which is a particular high meta level of studying, 
uh, dharma, which would be, in a sense, you could call it reality or the laws of reality. You get the development from the first to the fifth century in India of Mahayana Buddhism or the later form of Buddhism. I, I won't go into it in a lot of detail, but the main figure in that form of Buddhism is not the Buddha, but the Bodhisattva. And the Bodhisattva is a, a human figure who can travel around in space-time, can manifest over here and over there. And kind of Jesus is considered a Bodhisattva so that you know Jesus manifested after he died. And he manifested in a physical form so that his disciples could test, was he really there? And so that mastery of space-time is already in the history of these figures mm -hmm. who could move through it without any problems uh, after they died or they moved through walls or they could move from this place to that place. They weren't yet free to leave. They weren't mm -hmm. Buddhists, so they didn't leave. And there's a lot of speculation about staying to help other beings or staying because they hadn't achieved a capacity to leave space-time. Uh, it gets debated, but the I think the really, for me, the important question that, that has come up for me in regard to your theory, so I, I heard on a little video that that Mike actually sent me, I heard you say, you know, there's there's nothing that in the theory that would, would limit consciousness going on beyond the death of the body right. of, you know, Don Hoffman or Polly Eisendrath, that the body is an icon, but maybe it's just awareness that goes forward without the particulars of the Don Hoffman embedded in it or imprinted on it. So the Buddha himself, Shakyamuni Buddha and his immediate disciples, they all got out of space-time. They got out completely. From his teaching, the interesting thing, he says the only thing that belongs to you over the trajectory in space-time is your actions. The consequences of your intentional actions have affected space-time. And they've created something again, from the Buddhist perspective, that does have some imprint from lifetime to lifetime, but it will be the consequences of your intentional actions, perceiving, deciding, and acting. Mm -hmm. And I saw right away in your theory that this fitted very much with the Buddhist theory of karma, which is the consequence of intentional action. It's got to have that sense of deciding in it, or it's not consequential. And that to me is just something, I don't know what it is, but you know, it's a notable kind of thing that within a fairly coherent theory, this, this Abhidharma Yogacara stuff's pretty coherent and it's developed empirically and debated and, and so on. Within that are these figures that travel around in space-time and also the statement of the Buddha that your only belongings are the consequences of your actions nothing else goes through through space-time. You know, everything you own, everything that you do other than your actions, I mean, those things are not consequential. And I think this also then gets at the intersection of science and spirituality in an interesting way. So for the first time, there are some scientists who are saying space-time is doomed. Spiritual people have been saying that for thousands of years. So there's a welcome to the party. You guys are, you scientists are latecomers. So, the, so, so they've been there and they've been studying outside of space-time with meditation and, and, and so forth, personal experience. Now the scientists are, are now waking up, again, it's a small group, it's the high-energy theoretical physicists. 
even right. just general quantum theorists don't know about this yet, right? So I, I've I've asked a bunch of quantum theorists, they don't they don't know about it. So it's it's only the people who who have to know this who are going holy smoke, space time is doomed. The rest don't even know it yet. So it's going to take a while, but they have the tools, and these are new tools that we got through hundreds of years studying space time. And so the two groups have different parts of the puzzle. The spiritual people have been there for thousands of years. They have all sorts of deep insights, but they have only natural language to describe it in. They don't have precise theories. We're newcomers in the sciences. We're just stepping outside of space time for the first time, only a few of us, but we're, we're, we're starting to do it. We have these incredible tools. We've not trafficked in this area before. So this is, this is all new. So the two have something to share with each other. The spiritual traditions have all sorts of hard-won insights from meditation and so forth. The, the scientists have hard-won uh, mathematics and techniques and experiments that they've won by studying the headset. So we need the two now to, to work together. And, and, and I think that, that that will happen. And both, it will be a shock to both. The shock to the scientists in part is that space-time isn't fundamental. That's a, that's a huge, huge shock. Most of my colleagues don't know that that's where they're headed. It's, it's just too shocking for them, especially my con my st colleagues studying consciousness. They're still all physicalists, and the, you know, physical systems create consciousness. The brain creates consciousness, and of course, you you are your body, and and your consciousness is just what your brain does. And when your brain dies, your consciousness ceases to exist. That that whole framework is is still in force. They they have no idea that space time is doomed and reductionism is dead. They just don't know. But on the other hand, the the spiritual traditions don't have the mathematical tools and they don't have the advantage of those mathematical tools so i see the two coming together and then the kinds of things that you were talking about about travel after death beyond space-time and then back into space-time we'll be able to actually talk about those things with mathematical precision right these spiritual traditions have talked about it with the language that, they, that was available which is natural language but if we can actually start to write down equations and write down network models of what's going on there then we will kick this up to a level, new level. And, and, and again, the spiritual traditions, of course, have been very, very clear for thousands of years that, you know, as, as the Tao Te Ching says, the, the Tao that can be spoken is not the true Tao. Right? Uh -huh. And once you understand that, if you understand it, then you can go ahead and read the rest of the Tao Te Ching you know, in the proper framework. This is not the truth. This is a pointer to the truth. These are all just pointers to the truth. The truth is you. You are the truth. And the pointers are really pointing back to you. The, the spiritual traditions have told us for thousands of years that what they're saying isn't the truth. Just view it as pointers. Like if I want to tell you, you know, what is the taste of cinnamon? Well, the only way I can't, if I describe mm -hmm. it, you're not going to get it. I have to give you a piece of cinnamon and say, taste, taste this. And then say that's cinnamon. So I saw my point, that taste is cinnamon. That's how, so that's what pointers are. And, and spiritual traditions, mm -hmm. if you don't understand it for yourself, all they can do is say, I, I can't help you. If you've never tasted cinnamon, all I can do is say the word cinnamon, but you'll never get it. If you've mm -hmm. never tasted, you know, transcending space-time, all I, I can't tell you. I mean, you, you just have to do it. You, you have to actually do it yourself. And the same thing with seeing the color green and, and so forth. We this is called ostensive definition, and that's how we we learn is by ostensive definition. Someone points and says, you know, that's our cat. Mm -hmm. So then the kid learns that that's a cat. Mm -hmm. This is the taste of mint and so forth. This is what happens when you let go of thought. There's this peace. There's there's the silence. There's emptiness, as the Buddhists will sit would say. Mm -hmm. But those pointers, see, the thing about science is we get even better pointers. They're still just pointers. They're not okay. the truth. Mm -hmm. But the, here's, here's their power. The pointers from science tell you their limits in the pointer itself, mm -hmm. like space-time. It's done at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. That's the end of it. 
10 to the minus 43 seconds, that's over. The pointer mm -hmm. tells you its limits. And we haven't had that before. So this is where the spiritual traditions are going to get a real supercharge from the sciences because all of a sudden you'll have access. The spiritual traditions will have access to these new pointers that have an antidote for dog dogmatism. The pointers themselves tell you their limits. So you can no longer confuse the pointer for the truth. And that's, that's mm -hmm. of course, a big problem that's been in, in spiritual traditions. I love my pointer and I'll kill you because you, 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 you don't believe, you know, you're... You, Right. We've, done, we've seen the history of that. So, so when the pointers themselves say, "Don't take me that seriously," I'm just a pointer. Then we're on, on to the races. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I think what you're adding that the headset idea is not in the spiritual traditions. That the the spiritual traditions are not saying this is a result of your particular headset. They're saying this is. The wisdom or whatever. I mean, Buddhism doesn't do that so much, but many the Abrahamic traditions tend to say, "This is a you got to believe it this way. It's not a headset, and you know, so somebody else has got the wrong headset." But the the idea that it could become clear to people that they have a limited view, but that it's a valuable view, you know, it's like it's it's like the Don Hoffman view of things is valuable and true because of Don Hoffman passing through space-time. You know, that's valuable, but it's not, it doesn't stand in for Mike or Polly. That kind of insight is very difficult to convey. Psychoanalysis has tried to convey it, you know, and then Buddhism has tried to convey it too, and many poets and artists and so on. But if it can be conveyed scientifically in a way that can be generalized. I think that may be one of the most helpful ways to stop humans from killing each other over their headsets, you know, just because they have different views. You know, to me, that would be a major, major contribution that could happen even possibly somewhere, at least near the end of my lifetime. You know, it's like, it's not so far away really from what you're saying as well you know it's a few people but still it's clear that that there is something that's coming yes that is really different that's right and 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 when see right now we have the situation where scientists are saying you are just your body you're just yes. space time yes they have been yes right and 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 the spiritual traditions have been saying no you're not you're 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 something much more special you're you're your consciousness and then you ask well Who's building technology that we use? Well, it's not the spiritual people; it's the scientists. Right. So they right. get the benefit of the doubt. They must—they're onto something because my iPhone is built by phys physicalists. It's not built by spiritual people. They're right. built by physicalists. Right. But when the phys when 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 the physicists are now saying space time is doomed, right? And when that really catches on, when people realize, no, this is you know, space time is just a headset, and your body is just an avatar. That's not you, and right. you are not your brain. The brain doesn't even exist unless you look inside and then you create it when you look at it. When people begin to realize that's what science is saying and technology comes from it. This is, we're getting new technology. This is no longer just BS, you know, that you can write it off as BS. You know, this is this is the stuff that builds our new technology. So I have to take it to heart that I'm not this body. That's going to be a huge help in letting go of the ego. Well, that's yeah. not, it's not, not going to make you egoless. You know, the, the process of letting go of your ego is extremely painful. Right. And Jesus said, you know, take up your cross daily and follow me. It's, it's, a, right. it's a daily crucifixion feeling, I mean, right. to, to let go of the ego. But if there's if, if 
if you think that your best scientists are telling you you don't need to do that because it's just that's all BS, then then you're not going to be nearly as inclined to do it. But when the scientists are saying no, no, you are not mm -hmm. your avatar. You are something apparently that's far far more important and more, far deeper. So let go, let go of your image of yourself as just this ego, this body. Mm -hmm. Then you there'll be some there'll be more I think uh, reason for people to let go more more initiative to to let go. It, it still won't be easy, but maybe, maybe the science will also give us some help. Maybe there'll uh -huh. be some new techniques that we can get from science that will make it, because right now it's a, it's a, it's a grind. It's a painful process of letting go of the ego. You know, anybody who's meditated and faced your fears and your anxieties and faced the ugliness of the ego and, and watch it dissolve slowly. Most, in most cases, it's slowly. You know, it, it's a painful process. Maybe science will have some help on that. And if so, then it could transform humanity. Well, I'm I'm hoping so. I I think your work has been an important, really important contribution in this brief period of time that I've known you. I have been able to clarify a lot of spiritual insights and and use a different language. Oh, wonderful! Uh, you know that that has been I think more easily received, and that language also has been able to map onto developmental psychology that I studied and became an academic in, you know, because idea of perception, changes in perception and cognition fits very well, you know, so it yes. all fits together. Yeah, like well. the stages of cognition, cognitive yes. development, absolutely, like right. Piaget stages, for example. Right, yes. right. Absolutely. And so, um, Mike, is there anything you want to ask still, because we're wrapping up, I know. Just, I guess, your thoughts, uh, taking what you were saying to the next, like, in terms of our desire to go quote explore the universe there's there's a bit of an irony here that as your theories get tested and permeate the physics community the approach to quote space travel from what i just understood you to say may be a different way to do this outside of space time because the reality is those distances are incomprehensible for us to ever to ever be able to travel uh, the way science fiction currently envisions, it makes way more sense, especially if, at least from my understanding, we are getting better and better at teletransporting quanta over larger and larger distances. So there may be uh, practical implications that will have a dramatic shift on the entire system. Like, for example, now that you have the LHC as a tool, you have these this new mathematics that enables you to use these new tools to peer outside of space-time. I'm just wondering if you have any final thoughts on that. Yes, I think that the te technologies are going to be indistinguishable from magic, just like what we're doing right now, right? If you took someone from 1800, just brought them here and showed them what we were doing and said, you, now, you, these two people are in, in, are in Canada, in Montreal, and this other person is in California, and they're, they would go, no, no, this is this is... And they would say, no, 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 it's, it's all good science. It's all you know, Maxwell's equations make all. You, well, same thing's going to be true. We'll, we'll just have this new layer of software outside the headset. See, this will be the first layer outside the headset. Yeah. And once you have the software outside the headset, all the stuff that you could do inside the headset is going to look like small firecrackers compared to what you've got outside the headset. So absolutely, I think that the technologies will, will be indistinguishable from, from magic. And that will not just transform the technology, but that will also then bring more serious understanding that we have to take it seriously, that we're not just our egos. We're not just these avatars. So that, that will really give 
um, some legitimate legitimacy in the to the broad pub, public in their in their eyes to what the spiritual traditions have been saying for a long time. When you can actually build technology with it, okay, that's that's real. Yeah. <laughs> so I think yeah. that, that would be that would be something very useful going forward. So, you know, that has to happen, though, in line with the surrendering of the greed. The greed is connected to the materialism of the body, that people feel that they have to have certain things because they believe in the materialism of their bodies and their children's bodies, etc. So there's this tremendous greed that's happening in this period of time, and particularly around technology. So hopefully that will be transcended by the uh, recognition that the body is not what we currently think it is. I agree. That that, yeah. that I think will be transformative, and also that uh, you know that fancy car is only there when you render it. Yes. <laughs> right. That piece of gold is only there when you render it. Yeah. You are amazing. You are the one mm -hmm. that renders Mount Everest. Mm -hmm. You are the one that renders the moon and the sun. Mm -hmm. You are the 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 creative consciousness that does all that. So it's it's why pretend that you're a pauper that needs to go after all these little a, a mansion and a house and a fancy car you create all that stuff I mean, yeah. get over it i mean you, you just wake up to who you really are when you wake up to who you really are that's the cure yeah well thank you so much for this thank you and actually i'm in vermont mike is in st louis and you oh. are in california so we're oh, okay i, I we're, said no, montreal and, yeah nobody's in montreal that's just okay. where the time that's where montreal the time, time is located okay. on oh, the very, Zoom, very good. Okay. So, right, right. That, yeah so um so anyway i'm extremely extremely thankful grateful appreciative for your work and and also this conversation i just want to again say i really appreciate your work i look forward to to finding the first test see what you come back with and uh just really appreciate uh the honor of getting to speak with you really enjoy you, your work a, a wonderful pleasure and honor to speak with both of you as well thank you for excellent questions so until later thank you thank you we hope you found this discussion as fascinating and thought-provoking as we did if you've enjoyed today's episode please don't hesitate to like and share it with all your friends and colleagues your support helps us bring more insightful content to a wider audience. For those of you passionate about diving deeper into the realms of self-awareness and meaningful conversations, we invite you to explore our Real Dialogue app. It's a unique platform designed specifically for individuals like you, curious, driven, and committed to a personal and professional growth. The Real Dialogue app offers a space to engage in profound and transformative conversations, enhancing your practice and understanding of effective communication. Remember, engaging in real dialogue is not just about refining your communication skills. It's about fostering authentic connections, embracing diverse perspectives, and growing both personally and professionally. The app is available for download now, so please be sure to check it out at realdialogue.com. Thank you once again for joining us on Waking Up Is Not Enough, Flourishing in the Human Space. Stay tuned for our next episode where we'll continue to explore the intricate tapestry of human consciousness and development. Until then, keep flourishing and embracing the journey of self-discovery. And I also would like to just take a moment to announce the upcoming foundational training in Real Dialogue and Dialogue Therapy being held in Stowe, Vermont at the Trap Lodge. Session one begins November 30th. There are three four-day sessions in the next training. Session one is November 30th to December 3rd. Session two will be February 1st through 4th. And session three will be April 18th to the 21st of 2024. For more information, you can go to realdialogue.com and from the menu, select foundational training. All the details are there. If you have any questions about the training, 
or anything in the podcast, you can email me at mike at realdialogue.com.